This is episode one of the Therapy Ideas podcast, a series of conversations with speech and language therapists from around the world. I'm Rhiannon Walton, and I'm talking to Helen Stringer about using social media in evidence-based practice, making the most of students on placements, and practical ways of reflecting on things we do at work every day. Find out more about the podcast series at therapyideas.org or subscribe via iTunes by searching for Therapy Ideas. If you'd like to hear more about the role of evidence-based practice in engaging with commissioners and in service delivery, join us for the Therapy Ideas live debate on the 26th of June 2012. A hundred therapists will be listening to featured speakers and discussing the future of speech and language therapy at the Mermaid Conference Centre in London. For details and to buy your ticket, go to therapyideas.org forward slash live. So I'd like to welcome Helen Stringer to the podcast. Helen is a speech and language therapist and lecturer at Newcastle University with a particular interest in evidence-based practice. And Helen, I know you wrote uh, a series for the Bulletin a while back now, and I'd like to chat with you about that today. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, nice to see you. <laughs> great. So you, you, I wanted to start by asking you about questions because you talk about asking the right sort of questions. And one of the examples you give is what's the most effective way of keeping informed of developments in my field and sharing that knowledge with colleagues, Twitter or Journal Club. Uh, Tell me what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's probably quite a hard thing to find evidence about. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence about using journal clubs as um, ways of um, developing evidence-based practice in your service and they're sort of quite an established form of CPD now but they take up a lot of time and they require a lot of commitment and organisation and you know I've I've sort of been in places where they've had journal clubs that have been set up and they've sort of fallen by the wayside really because the same people have gone every time and, and the same people are doing all the work um, but recently, I um, came across um, a fabulous bit of CPD on Twitter, yeah. um, which I think it was, um, it came under the hashtag of SLPeeps, yeah. and um, it was about fluency, and people from all over the world in a particular time frame were tweeting bits of information about um, what they did yeah. um, when they were working with disfluent clients. And although having only 140 characters is very constraining, so the bits of information that you get um, are very short and very concise and um, you get information from people all over the place. So you have to sort of, it takes a little while to make sense of it. Yeah, yeah. People throw out nuggets of information that are really, really interesting. Yeah. And it it's very quick so you you know you it's something that you're interested in and then you can go off then and actually look at the literature that supports those things yep. so it's more self-directed but really you're being presented with a, like a huge um tray full of interesting little nuggets yeah choose the ones that you find most interesting and follow those up yeah they're often not things that you would come up with all on your own yeah uh, or even 
colleagues in your service may not come up with them because you're all working in the same way. And actually having opportunity to uh, contact and, and be in contact with people from all over the world, I think is phenomenal. Yeah, something that we just didn't really have access to even just a few years back, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, that wealth of knowledge, which is quite different from our own all around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that there is still a place for journal clubs in the current NHS? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and actually, you know, I've just been recommending today to some people really that they set one up. Yeah. Um, because there's a there's a lot of a lot to be said for working together with colleagues. Um, and discussing evidence, new evidence that comes out, and thinking about how it fits into the service that you deliver to your clients mm. and how useful it might be. Um, and sometimes you have to do that in a lot of depth um, because you need to um, safeguard against, uh, I think, leaping in and seeing something that looks like a good idea and implementing it, um, and then you know, looking at it in a bit more depth afterwards and saying, oh, actually, that might not have been such a good idea. Yeah. Actually, having the opportunity in a journal club to everyone read a paper or two papers and then think about what the pros and cons are, how good they are as papers, um, and then discuss how they relate to your clients, I think is an invaluable thing to do. Yeah, great. And I think maybe the format is changing a little bit, isn't it? Like like you said incorporating perhaps different sources of of information into those more traditional ways of sharing ideas um sort of into one package really yeah yeah absolutely. yeah okay great um yeah and you mentioned sharing experiences to avoid duplicating effort um, and that's what one of my aims with the therapy ideas live is all around sharing experiences um so how do you think social media will will change how we do this um i think essentially social media is a platform that lots of people can access and as I mentioned earlier about just having um, contact with therapists from all over the world, mm. um, I was at a conference recently and was tweeting and in, about the content of the conference and someone immediately tweeted me back from Australia mm. saying, tell me more about this. Yeah. And I thought that was remarkable actually because it was a piece of work that someone had done in Ireland and I was there from England watching yeah. it. And someone from Australia was saying, hey, I could actually, that's got relevance to my clinical practice. Yeah. I thought of it before. And I think to actually pick up um, work that's going on and have lots and lots of people think about it. Um, first of all, it means that we all benefit from our sort of collective knowledge. Mm. Um, but also, so often we have similarly good ideas yeah. And at the moment, we don't have um, a very robust forum, really, for sharing what we do. There is, you know, we can write it up formally in a journal mm. and have it peer reviewed and published. But for the early stages of things that we're doing, um, like, you know, is this a good way of um, delivering our therapy to this particular group of, of clients or you know, has anyone tried using their iPad to do something? Yeah. Those types of things which, you know, are, don't come out of a research project that's written in a peer-reviewed paper. Mm. I think those types of things where you need lots of people to be trying it out and thinking about and contributing to the discussion of them, social media really is the 
best way I think that we can do that yeah and um, I think the only disadvantage we have possibly here in the UK and I don't know if it's the same in other countries is that if you work for the NHS you can't access any of that when you're in your workplace what do you mean well um the computers in I you know NHS oh. IT services are very very constrained they're very limited in what you can access yeah. so for instance you know you couldn't have Facebook on it you couldn't have Twitter on it yeah um so there is a, a sort of drawback there I think that automatically it then comes something that you have to do outside of work time yeah um, which isn't always the you know the, the ideal thing really no do, do, do you think that might be one of the reasons that the the uptake of things like using social media to talk about speech and language therapy it seems to have been a little bit sort of slower and later over here than perhaps in places like the states do you think that might be one of the reasons for it or yeah I think it could actually mm. because you know you look at what people are doing over in the states and in Canada and they're they're almost consulting with each other mm. often in during you know therapy sessions you know someone will sort of put out there um, I've got this type of client, you know, I, I'm thinking of doing this. Has anyone else done it? Has anyone got any advice? And they'll get given advice straight away. Yep. Whereas, obviously, we, you know, we couldn't do that if we were, you know, unable to access um, that platform. So I think that's, that is a, quite a really, you know, big factor. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, do you think what we really need is some way of kind of coordinating all of those tweets and um, Facebook updates, don't we? If, if the people are going to be able to use it to sort of collect data from all over the world about whether particular things are working or not, maybe that's maybe that's the future. Yeah, I think at the moment it, it is just in sort of real time and it mm. and gets lost. And I think you're right. I think in the future. Um, because so many other, so many professions, I think, are now using Twitter and similar types of things um, as a way of sharing information. That it's probably not going to be that long before someone does develop the software that um, perhaps inserts comments into a wiki feed or something, yeah. so that people can keep it and contribute to it um, in different ways. You know, there's an awful lot of very clever people out there who do. <laughs> technology thing absolutely yeah um great stuff um then one of the other things that I was interested in about your your series was about um how you talked about using students on placement um to critically appraise new evidence and and carry out service uh, sort of in-service research projects um and actually that came up at work yesterday um how can how can this sort of meet both the aims of both sides so both the students and the service that they're having their placement in well um at newcastle we have worked really closely with um our placement providers um so that it really does that mm -hmm. so for instance in our third year um one of their clinical placements part of their assessment is that they include an appraisal of the evidence base in a case study that they do about a client so what they'd be doing then is actually exploring the evidence base say for the intervention or assessment that they've been doing and then they'd make that available separately for their um, clinical educator okay. um, and then our um, final year students our fourth year students um, 
in our undergraduate course, they have two opportunities to um, work with um, emplacements. One of them, they carry out an audit. So part of their time there is doing clinical work. Yeah. Part of their time is doing some sort of audit or service evaluation for their clinical educator. And they've done a huge variety of different things um, in those. Um, sometimes they develop materials. So, for instance, in one service, they did um, an, an evaluation of how people with communication disorders were able to um, get privacy at GP services, at the reception of GP services. Okay. And arising out of that, they produced a booklet about um, recommendations for how people with communication disorders could be better catered for in GP surgeries yeah. and the PCT there made a commitment and actually um, gave money not only to have this booklet published but also to make adjustments, recommended adjustments in, in the GP surgeries. Oh, wow, that's great. It was a, an absolute remarkable outcome mm. um, and in other cases they've you know looked at um, say for instance the number of um, children on a caseload, on a paediatric caseload that have had summer birthdays compared to the ones that have had um, birthdays in the rest of the year. So the ones that, it, you know, like young in the school year. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what did they so, find? <laughs> well, they found that more of them are young in the school year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is quite interesting. So, lot, you know, lots of things like that that they do, which are, are sort of, you know, as a clinician, you, you often have a burning question and you think if only I had the time to do that yeah and so we have you know 35 or 36 students going out um, and helping our clinical educators um, answer those questions Um, and then they also have to do a a research project and a dissertation and so sometimes um, clinicians have got ideas as well and um, sometimes part of their own research that they're doing yep. and so we work together with clinicians and build in um, student support wherever we can and the students get their dissertation out of it and the clinicians get their um, data you yep. know when I was doing my PhD I had two students who, who actually um, helped me yep. uh, to collect data and it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, and our MSc2 students actually do a single case study. Um, so, you know, clinicians who've got a client who they really know needs a lot of intensive work um, will save them up for <laughs> MSc2 extended case. Um, and although the students only are there for six weeks, they could see the, you know, they see the client every day. Okay. So um, it's a really intensive bit of work. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, recently, um, we, one of the students that I supervised um, was out on placement in a, um, a, with a child with learning disability, and um, she devised a dynamic assessment to find out whether the child could actually make benefit of, of speech and language therapy. Great. It would actually be pointless doing it. Yeah. Um, and was able to then present all this information to the clinician and say, actually, if you give him this amount of support... He can manage perfectly fine and he'll make progress that he'll keep. Yeah. Um, and and you don't need to do this amount of support because it's too much. And this amount of support will mean that he won't learn. So she was then able to um, you know, take that away and implement it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, clinicians can use those audits that you talked about 
as something to sort of present to commissioners i know we're getting sort of scored on our dashboard it's like have you done your your four a year audits and things and sometimes we're sort of scratching around and thinking i'm sure we have but where is it and and yeah if we've got somebody to to help us with that that would be amazing yeah i think it does have to be two-way traffic with students because um although we've all been students ourselves and we're all signed up to supervising students, um, it's really good as well if they can support us to do something. And, and also they're, they're really crucial skills for the students to have. I mean, how fabulous if you're going out to your first job and you've already had experience of doing audit and yeah. service evaluation. Um, so it, it is, it's a win-win, yeah. total win-win. Absolutely, yeah. Great. Um, I know you've watched the the video clip of Kate Malcolm's talk mm. at the last Therapy yeah. Ideas live event, um, and she was talking about evidence based practice, um, and she talked about remembering to ask, "Can I help this client?" What What do you think about that? I think that's really crucial, actually. Mm. Um, if we think about the three elements, three main elements of evidence based practice, which are obviously the empirical evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, there's our experience and knowledge as speech and language therapists and then there's also the client and what they want to get out of all of this um, and I think it is crucial that we see things from their perspective really yeah. um, and are, are actually doing something that's going to be helpful to them to achieve their goals no matter no matter what they are really yeah. um, and I think we can um, start using evidence um, in that way to support our clinical practice um, and still take on board what, what our clients want us to do really and I don't mean by that that, that we should just you know say, say to them what do you want and then actually do it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because sometimes people want things which are really inappropriate yeah. um, and, actually, and also wouldn't um, wouldn't make things any better for themselves it's just you know they may have seen something on the television or on the internet Um, and I think what we need to do is we need to know about the evidence so that we can actually set advise them properly Mm. um, about what choices that they can make and actually support them to make those choices and and sometimes that choice might lead them out of speech and language therapy altogether but sometimes it might also make them um, think about it in a different way and discover things that they didn't know that we could do for them because yeah. Yeah, it's about expanding their horizons as well really yeah. um, so I think it is crucial I think Kate's you know absolutely hit the nail on the head there yeah. we really do need to think about what we can do for our clients yeah. How, yeah. how the evidence can support us to do those things yeah I suppose sometimes you know when when you're seeing so many clients you sort of you sort of begin to assume okay well this is your difficulty and therefore you must want to fix it in this way and actually when you start speaking to them and unpicking what's going on and what's happening in the family at that time you realize that oh actually they're thinking about this issue in a completely different way and um I suppose it's just having that that reflection time isn't it which just yeah. seems so it's... precious at the moment but yeah. yeah it's really hard actually but sometimes by doing it that way the problem actually becomes smaller than it was before Mm. and and you can you can focus on something that really makes a huge difference for your client which you may not have even thought of before yeah now I I once worked with 
was working with some students and we had a child who had really, really unintelligible speech, but he couldn't say thank you. The, well, the way he said thank you was so unintelligible, it didn't sound like thank you. And his mum was really upset because his granny thought he was a rude child oh. because he never said thank you. Oh. And so we just did a bit of um, the core recovery intervention. Yeah. We actually taught him how to construct a motor programme to say thank you <laughs> and to say it. And he, he actually said "dau" at the end. Yeah. It sounded like thank you. Yeah. And they were so happy with that. Yeah. And then everything else that we did slotted into place so much more quickly. Yeah. Because, of course, their level of motivation then was enormous. Yeah. Whereas you might have thought at the beginning, oh, well, we need something really functional and thank yeah. you isn't functional and how is that going to help? And yeah, yeah. Uh, we'd have, you know, probably started looking at, you know, some other type of phonological process that was going on or something, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and um, it was just, a, I thought it was a, just a really nice example, really, of, of totally listening to what they said and yeah. thinking, hmm, well, we wouldn't normally work on fur to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah why not great oh that's a lovely story um so so finally I just I mean the whole series that you wrote um oh, it's a while back now in the bulletin is really really practical I particularly like the bit about um write down the searched terms that you've used so you can find them again that's something I often forget to do um but um can you can you give us sort of some advice about how to get started implementing evidence-based practice activity into our daily work lives. I mean, at the moment, everyone is incredibly stretched, but it's obviously so important. So what would be the sort of the take-home points, that the tips you'd like people to, to think about? Well, I think one of the things that I would suggest is that you start using something like a critical appraisal checklist when you read literature yep. from journals, because it actually speeds up the way you look at literature because yeah. you focus on the important bits of it um, if you're very brave um, you could redo the stats on in a paper and Ooh. see um, and actually do what the author did yeah. in the same way which is it was quite a good thing that's a good way of building up your confidence in looking at statistics yeah um so you don't actually have to think you know come up with the um the tests that you need to do because the author's already chosen it you can just rerun it yeah and see if it works um, so I think that's one thing using I don't think we use critical appraisal checklists often enough and you can always make up your own if you don't like the ones that are there yeah. um, you can adjust those um, another thing I think is to use reflection on our practice to think about the things that we do very routinely that we don't really think about so for instance an assessment that you might use routinely yeah. and you think well, I do that with all my clients and actually go back and look at the evidence for its usefulness yeah um so looking in the technical manual at how it was standardized and what the population is you know really used for um and I think to start actually thinking critically about what we are doing ourselves but to do it in a positive way and not do it in a way where you're going to rubbish what you've done okay think about it in a way of a pathway of actually moving forward yeah and you know in the current climate that we work in we don't know when our commissioners are going to say well actually we've heard about this assessment and we'd like you all to do this yeah. or we actually I mean it does happen we you know we want you just to give five hours of therapy to everyone and 
um, and Goodness, to actually yeah. have an answer to that mm. that you can come up with um, is is really important and those are the types of things that we need to be thinking about um, and do it and starting off in very small ways um, and about challenging our own thinking yeah uh, I think it I mean it's quite a hard thing to do I know I, over the years I've had to let go of quite a few things that I really liked <laughs> um but that was really because I'd just become very comfortable with them yeah um and and actually it it turns it's much more exciting at work if you do challenge yourself a little bit absolutely absolutely yeah yeah and I think when the pressure to see sort of more and more children Mm. is is coming you you sort of natural thing is right well I'll, I'll just sort of try and make it as similar and and yeah challenge myself as as little as possible but then that's linked to job satisfaction isn't it and which is obviously what we've got an issue with as well with all this pressure at the moment um no that's really great that that we should try and think about it positively and and move moving forward rather than negatively um increasing our employability and our desirability for our commissions really absolutely that's great oh thank you very much Helen for joining me on my first podcast um, that's really great um, thank you you're welcome it's been a really good experience thank you very much that was the first episode of the therapy ideas podcast For more information about the series, check out the website therapyideas.org or subscribe via iTunes. If you'd like to come along to our debate on the 26th of June, you can buy your ticket by going to therapyideas.org forward slash live.